listening to the Compassionate Conservative podcast series by the Eco-Free Press. My name is Miranda, and in each episode, I will be talking about different ways to approach social justice issues and ideas from a conservative standpoint. Today's episode is all about climate change. Personally, I think this is a fun topic to talk about, and I love the conservative environmental movement, which has really taken off in the past few years. This is actually a very bipartisan issue with a ton of common ground, but so many people would never know that. Hopefully by the end of this episode, you will have learned something new and maybe even feel optimistic about the future of environmental policy and politics. I also have an amazing interview with Benji Backer, the president and founder of the American Conservation Coalition, which is in the last 20 minutes of this episode, so make sure you check it out. When it comes to this topic, a common debate that we often get stuck on is if climate change is even a real and serious issue. There is one camp that believes the environment will be completely destroyed in 12 years without drastic change. Some go to the other extreme and think that climate change is just some big Chinese hoax. Then there are people in the middle who think that climate change is real and want to address it, but don't think we need to live in crushing fear of the world ending just yet. Obviously, we want to have these discussions, but what is so beautiful about this topic and why I love it so much is that almost everyone agrees that taking care of our environment is important, regardless of what they think of the science. I can't think of many other political issues where everyone can find a foundational point to agree on. When we have that, we can really come together to make effective change for the better. There is a false dichotomy which suggests that you are either an environmental alarmist or actively making the environment worse, which could not be further from the truth. Conservatives and the Republican Party actually have a long history of being conservationists. It was Republican presidents like Teddy Roosevelt who expanded national forests and wildlife sanctuaries. Richard Nixon led largely bipartisan efforts on environmentalism with regulations for clean air, water, and wildlife protection, as well as overseeing the creation of the EPA. George H.W. Bush strengthened the Clean Air Act, and George W. Bush, in the Trade Act of 2002, made agreements with countries like Peru, Colombia, and South Korea to help reduce airborne chemicals, deforestation, and illegal logging. Even Donald Trump, who was a climate change denier, surprised a lot of people with his policies. A few notable ones include the ban of oil drilling off the coast of Florida, Georgia, and North Carolina, awarding $72 million to carbon capturing technologies, and joining the One Trillion Trees Initiative. He also signed executive orders to improve the management of forest and debris removal to prevent wildfires and bipartisan legislation that permanently provides funding for the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Some conservative states also have a pretty decent track record for environmentalism. South Dakota has the best soil quality in the country, and they get 74.6% of their energy from renewables. Montana's share of renewable energy consumption is 65.3%, and Idaho's is 57.7%. Alaska ranks at number three for eco-friendly transportation, with 25.8% of people using public transit, carpooling, walking, or biking to work and Georgia has the largest growth rate for electric vehicle ownership. In addition, there is evidence to support that climate change skeptics are more likely to make more environmentally conscious decisions in their everyday lives. In 2018, a study conducted by Cornell and the University of Michigan found that those who are highly concerned with climate change are more likely to support government policies, but reported less individual pro-environmental actions, such as recycling, buying eco-friendly products, and using public transportation and reusable shopping bags. Those who are self-identified climate skeptics, however, were more likely to report 
support those behaviors. Ecopreneurship, which is eco-friendly entrepreneurship, is something that a lot of conservatives support and partake in, so I'm not surprised. If you're interested, I linked a list of 50 eco-friendly companies and products, many of which I use and love, on the EFP website, so take a look and maybe switch over to some eco-friendly products. So it is obviously wrong to assume that conservatives or climate skeptics don't care about the environment, but there is no denying that Republican rhetoric and action on the climate has taken a backseat. Over the past few decades, we have definitely moved away from our roots, largely in response to the rise in climate alarmism on the left. Environmentalism became synonymous with theory after theory of environmental doom that could only be solved with leftist policies. Despite mostly believing and wanting the same things, environmentalists became a dirty word that conservatives just didn't want to be. And we became the party that said no to any actions regarding the environment without offering much in return, and we still see a lot of that today. Fortunately, Republican leaders have been doing a lot more to contribute to this conversation in the past few years, mostly in response to the rise of millennial and Gen Z conservatives who have been pushing the party towards acting on this issue once again. A survey by the American Conservation Coalition taken of 18 to 35 year old voters found that 79% of Republicans think the party should be more engaged and promote effective, economically sound policies. 77% of right-leaning voters say that climate change is an important issue, and 53% of left-leaning voters would consider voting for a conservative candidate who advocates for climate policies. If the Republican Party wants to appeal to younger voters and have any chance of continuing electoral success, it is clear that climate change is important. The environment is usually the number one or two issue for young people at the ballot box, and we cannot let Democrats be the only option for them. Even if winning elections wasn't a variable, it would still make sense for Republicans to engage on it. Democrats are selling huge government overreach and regulation as the only way to save the world from ending, and they are doing a great job at it. It is in our best interest to fight for policies that address climate change without the complete destruction of our economy and government as we know it. But we have to play our cards right. Republican leaders have found a happy place with arguing that liberal environmental policy proposals would cost too much money and implement socialism. But in case you haven't noticed, liberals have no problem sacrificing their money and freedom for what they believe to be the common good. So these defensive arguments are really only appealing to our own base, which already agrees with us. We have to talk about the many other problems with these policies, which there are plenty of, and propose solutions that we can support instead of just bashing on what they are doing. With that, let's get into some criticisms and other solutions for climate change, starting with energy sources. On the left, wind and solar energy is like the holy grail that if everyone just used all the time, our planet would be saved. They can certainly be great options, but the conversation around them isn't totally honest. There are actually quite a few issues that these sources pose to their surrounding environments, and it does not make sense to completely rely on them. Wind and solar power can only provide energy when it's windy and sunny, and we do not have the technology we need to store and wind solar power for those off days. They also have to be spread out across a ton of land to capture that energy, and there have been issues with relocating certain species from their habitats. Wind turbines are the number one cause of death for bats, and they specifically pose a threat to endangered species of birds like condors and eagles. Lastly, solar panels and wind turbines take a lot of material input and are difficult to recycle, so they mostly end up in landfills and release dangerous chemical runoff. 
One energy source that the left wants to phase out but really shouldn't is nuclear energy. Nuclear is incredibly reliable and safe. It runs 24-7 with virtually no greenhouse gas emissions and takes 17 times less material input than solar panels to be created. It is estimated to have saved 1.8 million lives by preventing the burning of fossil fuels, and it creates very little waste that is safely contained, whereas every other source of electricity releases pollution or material waste into our atmosphere. Most of the arguments against it have to do with safety concerns. That was definitely valid at one point, but is no longer the case. According to Lancet, a British medical journal, they have found that it is in fact the safest form of energy, and there are tons of regulations and practices in place today to prevent disaster. Nuclear energy is also very cheap. Currently, Germany gets 46% of its energy from nuclear and France uses nuclear for 93%. Yet, France pays half as much for their electricity as Germany. Similarly, California, which invests heavily in renewable energy, have costs rising at five times the national average. Not only is it cheaper, but it's more efficient. Germany invested $580 billion on renewable energy sources, but had that gone towards nuclear energy instead, they would already have had 100% of their electric and transportation energy from clean zero-emission sources. There are plenty of ways that we do and can continue to ensure safety when working with nuclear energy, but that can't be the only reason we throw out all of the ways that we can benefit from it. Another energy source is natural gas. Now, most people do agree that this should be a transitional energy source as it still causes emissions, but it is half the emissions of burning coal, and it is the reason that the U.S. has been leading in emission reduction worldwide, so it's still good to have for the time being. One major point to bring up with natural gas is energy independence, which benefits us economically and environmentally. We obviously want to move away from natural gas and fracking globally, but we in the U.S. can use it in much cleaner ways than other other countries would because of the regulations that we have. In addition, we are not transporting oil across the ocean, so we are reducing the emissions that come with transportation and the likelihood of oil spills. It is just better for the environment to keep that sector within the U.S., and it's cheaper for our consumers. When we use domestic oil, we support domestic jobs and keep prices low. This is especially helpful for low-income families who, on average, spend three times more of their income on energy-related costs. It doesn't make sense to harm some of our most vulnerable populations for the sake of the environment when we are more than capable of having the best of both worlds with sources like natural gas and nuclear. There are a bunch of other energy sources that the U.S. has barely tapped into. Biomass, for example, is the burning of organic material to create fuel. We have to make sure we aren't unsustainably deforesting or anything like that, but there is a ton of organic material that otherwise ends up in landfills that we could use. The United States also has large sources of geothermal energy, which is heat produced from the Earth's core. Not only is it renewable, clean, and reliable, but it has 50,000 times more energy than all of the oil and natural gas resources in the world, and requires 10% less land than solar farms. Right now, the U.S. only uses it for 0.4% of our energy needs, but that could grow 26 times by 2050 if we allow for innovation and growth in that sector, making a huge difference in our efforts to reduce emissions. Additionally, hydro is a great source of clean energy that only accounts for 6% of our energy use and it has the potential to grow 50% by 2050.
Now, I'm not saying that we switch over to all of these other energy sources and stop using renewables. People on both sides tend to think that we can only use renewables or only use nuclear, when in reality, we should be encouraging all of the above energy plans. We have a ton of options for people to choose from that might work better in different situations. Solar could be great to use in the deserts of Nevada, but maybe not in cloudy cities like Seattle and Pittsburgh. Wind is great in states like South Dakota and Montana, but not so much in Florida where, besides hurricanes, they do not have great wind speeds. Western states have a ton of geothermal resources, while others like Washington, New York, and Alabama have the highest capacity for hydro. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution, and there is nothing to support that we can reach our emissions goals using renewables alone. So in addition to energy sources, technology can play a huge role in tackling climate change. As it improves, we can use artificial intelligence and machine learning to create better environmental models, predict extreme weather occurrences, and accelerate scientific discovery and efficiency, all of which are crucial to understanding our environment and making the best decisions for it. There's also carbon capture and storage technology, which gives us the potential to actually remove carbon emissions at the source of fossil fuel production and from the atmosphere in general. Through genetically modified organisms, we can reduce emissions and free up land for other conservation and restoration efforts. For example, the GMO foods like the Impossible Burger use up to 87% less water, 96% less land, 89% fewer greenhouse gas emissions, and 92% fewer aquatic pollutants. It is so important that we are supporting innovation in these sectors so that we can continue creating technology that will make us better stewards of the environment. We can also rely on public and private lands for conservation and restoration efforts. Most people support the National Park Service, which provides jobs and makes the outdoors accessible for everyone to enjoy. The caveat here is that the federal lands are often mismanaged and underfunded, and the people hired are not given enough authority to take care of it how they know is best. More state and local cooperation in our national parks is crucial for them to be cared for properly. In addition to public lands, there are currently 56 million acres of private lands owned by organizations or individuals for the purpose of conserving it. This should continue to be supported and encouraged. The more we protect and restore our lands, the more we will reduce emissions and have better resiliency when facing extreme weather. And I've only touched on a few of the many ways that we can support and protect the environment, most of which I hope people on the right and the left can agree on. The major difference between the right and left, as I talked about in my first episode, is how we want to implement it. Conservatives want more free market innovation, while liberal policies include a lot of government control that often does more harm than good. For example, the Obama administration's 2009 stimulus package, which is actually regarded as the inspiration for the Green New Deal, subsidized a company called Solyndra that built solar panels. The company eventually filed for bankruptcy on September 1, 2011, and the administration, despite being aware of the pending financial collapse, continued to support the company for months. Internal emails revealed that they did this because of the political optics heading into the 2012 re-election campaign. Subsidizing certain sectors, in this case renewable energy, puts all other sustainable energy sources at a disadvantage, making it incredibly difficult to compete. Without competition, renewables become a monopoly that can charge whatever price it wants to the government, aka the taxpayers, and they will pay for it regardless of the quality of the product, ultimately hurting the American people and doing little, if anything, for the environment. So this wasn't a great idea to begin with, but then it was obviously handled incorrectly. It just further proves the point that we cannot rely on the government or our elected officials to put the interests of the American people above their own, and their power needs to be limited. 
I also want to talk about the Paris Climate Agreement. It seems like it would be a great plan for global cooperation on tackling climate change, something that we really do need. 189 countries, which account for 97% of the Earth's pollution, agreed to set certain goals to reduce emissions, increase transparency and accountability, and support developing nations in their environmental efforts. The problem is that there is nothing that requires them to specify how they are going to meet these goals, and there is no way to enforce that they do. China and India didn't even have to say they would reduce emissions when they signed. Not only have almost all of these countries failed to work towards the goals they set for themselves, but they have moved in the opposite direction. Between 2015, when the agreement was signed, and 2018, the EU increased their CO2 emissions by 50 million tons, and China increased by 120 million tons. The United States, despite President Trump leaving the agreement, was the only country that reduced overall CO2 emissions during that time. In fact, while other countries promised more regulations, Trump's administration actually made 64 deregulatory actions in the EPA, making it easier for businesses and individuals to make decisions regarding the environment, and that clearly worked out for us. Then last but not least, it would not be a climate change episode without talking about the Green New Deal. First, it's not legislation, it's just a resolution that if passed would require legislation to carry it out. Because of this, it doesn't have a ton of real policy or implementation strategies to criticize. All we can look at are the wish list items like 100% renewable energy and the updating of all of our infrastructure. The infrastructure point is actually very interesting because some question what that would mean for private property rights and what power the government would suddenly have to make you make changes to your home. We also already talked about how 100% renewable energy just can't work. Then of course the government will subsidize all of this so we can say goodbye to any solution that isn't government approved regardless if it works or not. Also, it isn't even about the environment. In 2019, AOC's former chief of staff admitted that the Green New Deal is not an environmental thing at all, saying, quote, do you guys think of it as a climate thing? Because we really think of it as a how do you change the entire economy thing, end quote. Of course, if you search the name of that chief of staff, you won't find this story from CNN, MSNBC, or Politico. I find it so frustrating that our politicians and media will use the real concern that people have and exploit it to push an incredibly partisan agenda. If you want to sell things like universal health care, reparations, and a jobs guarantee to the American people, call it what it is and don't hide behind climate change. Fortunately, in 2019, it was put up to a vote in the Senate where 43 out of 47 Democrats voted present instead of yes, and everyone else voted no, so there isn't super wide support right now. However, those who do support it are very vocal about it, and we have to fight their ideas with better ones. From both sides, the American people have been told that we have to choose between the environment and the economy, that improving both at the same time is impossible, but that isn't true. A good environment helps the economy and a good economy helps the environment. There are many ways for the government to take action that directly addresses the problem of climate change, but that is supportive of good decision making rather than making all of the decisions. For example, there is a smaller international initiative called the Agreement on Climate Change, Trade and Sustainability. It was launched by New Zealand with Costa Rica, Fiji, Iceland, Norway, and Switzerland. What it does is remove trading barriers on environmental goods, works towards the eventual removal of fossil fuel subsidies, and is meant to support voluntary development of eco-labeling that is transparent and meaningful to consumers. Opening up free trade would support eco-energy sectors in every country, driving down prices and increasing accessibility worldwide. 
Letting free market reign to create the best technology and innovation is what we need. Plus, it is much easier to export technology to third world countries, for example, than asking them to implement regulations that they may not have the means to do. Domestically, the 45Q tax credit is an incentive for businesses to develop and use more carbon capture and storage technology by reducing the amount of taxes they owe by the ton of captured carbon dioxide. There is also the conservation easement tax deduction, where landowners can voluntarily donate the land to the government or land trust for it to be protected. They still have certain rights to their property, such as selling it and growing crops, but they give up other rights like building on it in return for a tax deduction that is equal to the value of the property. We could also implement what is called an individual transfer quota or an ITQ for the fishing industry. The oceans contribute $282 billion to our economy each year, support 3 million jobs, and feed millions more. But overfishing is a huge problem that has dangerously decreased our fish stocks over the years. An ITQ would essentially create sustainable property rights on fish stocks, allowing agencies to only allow a certain number of fish to be caught. So similar to deer hunting, we can catch the right number of fish to sustain a healthy population and environment for them. It is also important to continue supporting sportsmen. Not only do certain charges and fees for hunting create revenue that gets reinvested directly to environmental efforts, but they have direct incentives not to overhunt, as that would threaten the very sport they participate in and the long-term economic success of the landowners. Now, I realize that what I've probably done here is make it sound like all liberal policies are bad and conservative ones are good, but that isn't always true. My point in all of this is to show that there is not just one way to address climate change and that we should be able to come together as a unified front to tackle this issue despite our differences in how to do so. There are pros and cons to all of the ways to go about it, even the ones I've talked about, and that just means we have to look at all of our options and find compromises. I think that people are scared to compromise on issues because it seems like a weird middle ground that doesn't do enough, but that just isn't true. A solution that everyone can agree on is one that has longevity. We could pass the Green New Deal tomorrow, but you can bet that the second Republicans get power, they will repeal all of it. And how does that accomplish anything? We can all be part of a larger movement that advocates for something more than our partisan politics, and this is a great place to start. And who better to help me solidify that message than one of the biggest leaders in the youth conservative environmental movement, Benji Backer from the American Conservation Coalition. The ACC is a nonprofit organization dedicated to mobilizing young people around environmental action through common sense, market-based, and limited government ideals. Benji founded the ACC in 2017 after his freshman year of college, and it has since grown into the biggest youth-led conservative environmental organization nationwide. I am so grateful to him for spending this time with me to discuss this issue, and I'm excited to share this interview with you all. All right, so I am joined right now with Benji Backer, the founder and uh, president of the American Conservation Coalition. Thank you so much for joining us today, Benji. Of course. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Well, we can just start. We can have you introduce yourself and just talk a little bit about the American Conservation Coalition. Yeah, so I'm Benji Backer, president and founder of ACC, and uh, I grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin, and I currently live in Seattle, Washington. I'm a lifelong conservative activist who believes that conservative uh, ideas and conservative individuals have a very important stake in environmental conversations. 
conservatives are people who live in rural areas, beautiful natural areas, and they care about their environment. But at the same time, they've been left out of the environmental conversation for a long time. And so whether it's climate change uh, or protecting our public lands or hunting or fishing, there's a stake for conservatives to have a voice in that conversation. So ACC is a national movement, uh, a membership-based movement of, of individuals who feel the same way in all 50 states and uh, even abroad. That's awesome. I came across the American Conservation Coalition last year, uh, right as the pandemic hit, actually, because I was doing a 50 and like 50 years of Earth Day anniversary project for my YAF chapter that I was the president of for a few years. Um, so that's how I came across the organization. It's been an inspiration and I've been following ever since. So um, I really appreciate you being here again. Well, of course. And, and, you know, Earth Day and environmental legacy has largely been Republican led and conservative led. Mm -hmm. And don't realize that. And I'm sure you, you you know that, Uh, you know, conservatives are some of the best stewards of of our environment throughout history. And you look at people even in Wisconsin, like Tommy Thompson, uh, who were heralded as some of the best environmental leaders of uh, our generation and generations before us. Um, so there's a legacy to be had, and, and it, with 50-plus years of Earth Day, most of the leadership has come from conservatives, and it's it's really important that we retake that mantle. Exactly. Uh, so one of the questions I have for you is I've, I've heard you talk a lot about how there's lots of bipartisan work and solutions going into um, this issue at, in Congress and in all the around the country, um, but how there's even though there's lots of bipartisanship, there's still a narrative being pushed on American citizens of how there's only one way to go about this and there's no compromise to be had. So why do you think that is? And is there something that we can do to kind of push away from that narrative? Well, division sells, unfortunately, in politics today. And, you know, obviously I'm conservative, but I, like most conservatives and most liberals in this country, don't like the division that's happening. And like most other issues on the environment, the, d- the divide actually isn't as big as people think it is uh, on, on environmental issues. So, I mean, if you look at Congress or you look at state legislatures, most of the policies that are being proposed and or passed, which there have been many, uh, are being done in a bipartisan way. And no one's talking about it. You know, the biggest investment in climate change technology and public lands in American history have been done over the past couple of years. And it was almost even in terms of how many Republicans and Democrats were participating in both of those policies passing. Uh, But that doesn't sell in the media. Uh, And environmental organizations on the left often don't talk about it because it doesn't fit the narrative that conservatives are the enemy number one. So when it doesn't fit the narrative and it doesn't sell, which bipartisanship or conservative leadership or both usually don't fit into that, uh, then people aren't going to know about it. And that's why it's really important for conservatives to stand up and say, A, I care about these issues. B, I think our ideas have an important stake at the table. And C, we already are doing a lot on it, and that deserves to be celebrated. Uh, and then I guess uh, D, the fourth priority, would be calling out the left uh, for some of the hypocrisy that they've had in, in not talking about these sorts of successes, uh, which have been actually very plentiful. So there's still a lot of work to be done. I'm not saying that like everything's perfect and we're not knowing about that perfectness because uh, that, you know, that is not the case. But at the end of the day, there is a lot of progress happening and it's happening because conservatives are at the table and it's in a bipartisan way that people just don't realize. So what are some of these policies that are proposed or have been passed recently that 
you think people might not be aware of and maybe should be aware of and could support? Yeah, so last summer, uh, President Trump and Democrats and Republicans in Congress supported something called the Great American Outdoors Act, which was a bill that funded our national parks. Our national parks were $13 billion in debt, and obviously they have been mismanaged. Uh, but when people are going there, and it's one of the biggest economic drivers uh, every summer in our country, uh, they probably should have upgraded roads and bridges and uh, visitor centers and that sort of thing, and trails should be managed and forests should be managed. All those things weren't happening, and uh, last summer they funded most of that debt, <clears throat> which was really, really important, and they also funded uh, a lot of the public lands that people hunt and fish, which were severely underfunded as well. So that happened last summer. And then uh, in December, right before the end of the congressional session, uh, before the new administration, uh, there was a big policy passed that invested in American-made technologies. So it was $35 billion that was given to uh, American companies and American technologies that were being uh, tested and researched and developed here in the United States to help lower carbon emissions. And it wasn't just wind and solar. It was carbon capture technology. It was nuclear. It was a lot of different uh, ideas on how to reduce emissions, not just kind of a one size fits all. So that's the sort of thing that we can do. And I, and I, and I think as, as people who are looking at this in a pragmatic way, the best thing we can do in the short term, as we try to figure out how we solve some of these challenges, is to invest in the technology and innovation here in the United States. Because other countries are going leaps and bounds above us in terms of what they're investing into their economy from a clean energy and pro-environmental perspective. And we're falling behind. And the best thing we can do to, to pr protect our environment is to invest in that. But it's also uh, very economically beneficial as well. Yeah, I totally agree. And I talked about a lot of that stuff in this episode too. And it's great to hear you confirm all those things that I've been researching and was sharing with my listeners too. Well, yeah. Uh, the reality is like this is a holistic approach and we always hear about regulation, 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 regulation. And like, sure, there are specific regulations that are very important for like making sure that people can breathe breathable air. But at the end of the day, most of the results that we're going to get that are for our environment will come from technology and innovation that hasn't been developed yet. And we are falling behind as, as, you, as I'm sure you've been talking about. Exactly. Um, so I guess my last question for you here is quick interview, um, but you talk, you're obviously on the front lines, especially in this past few years in the Republican Party, getting people from the right to come to the table on this issue and doing really important work. And you talk a lot about that in a lot of your interviews and things like that. Um, but I also was, wanted to know, like, do you do that kind of stuff on the left too? Like what kinds of experiences have you had with people working across the aisle to pass these kinds of things or get people on board um, and if you have um, any advice, I guess, for people listening about how you can deal with people who seem uncompromising on the left or the right, because I know there's people on both sides who are stuck in their ways and um, that don't want to compromise on this kind of stuff. Yeah, well, it's a really, really good question. I live in Seattle, Washington, like I said earlier, and Seattle's, you know, one of the more liberal places in, in America and obviously one of the more environmentally focused places in America. People think of Seattle, they think of liberal hippies, uh, just like Portland. So, you know, there's, there's definitely uh, some personal firsthand experience with it. Uh, in addition to what I've done nationally. And I guess it's a mixed bag, but the reality is 
uh, and my Wisconsin accent came out there. It always comes out on the word bag. Um, but the, the reality is uh, there's a disconnect between the elites and the everyday Americans in politics right now. And I'm not trying to sound like a, you know, a doomsday person on that, but the reality is young people, everyday Americans, they care about these issues. And if you're left or right, you just are excited that both sides are going to be at the table on environmental issues. And if a liberal in Seattle hears that you're a conservative who cares about the environment, people actually respond very well to that because they're like, wow, I didn't realize that that was possible. Um, And that's really exciting, which obviously is a problem within itself that they didn't think it was possible. But they respond very positively in the way that you talk about it. And I think a lot of conservatives would, would respond really positively if a liberal came into uh, a conservative area and said, hey, I'm a liberal who cares a lot about the environment, but I want to hear what your problems are and, and how you feel like you can be part of the solution. Like, I think that that sort of dialogue actually works very well on this issue that maybe isn't always the case on something like immigration or guns or something like that. Um, so I do. I have seen mostly positive experiences from non-elite people. And what I mean by that is people who don't run big environmental organizations or don't have a lot of power in politics. Because as I said earlier, those people feed off the division and the division helps them. So when they have someone like me or our movement trying to come in there and spread this positive message, it's seen as a threat. And so overall, the response has been overwhelmingly positive of liberals saying, wow, I'm really glad a conservative is standing up and a group of conservatives are standing up. But there are people on the far left or in the media or in the powers that be that see that as a direct threat to their monopoly on the issue. And if they feel like that's the monopoly that they don't want to let go, which is very uh, productive for them, uh, they don't respond as well. So my advice would be, if you're talking to people, make people blatantly aware that you are a conservative that cares about the environment uh, because surprising to some, a lot of people don't realize that uh, is possible. And on top of that, I would make sure that you realize that your voice in this effort is super, super important. As one individual, I've been able to help spearhead an organization that now has thousands of people speaking up as young right of center people who care about the environment. And now we're changing policy. We're changing hearts and minds. And then on top of that, you can vote with your dollars. You can vote um, with your ballots. You can do so many other things. But, you know, this political pressure and this societal pressure that comes from having this new group of people stand up is overwhelmingly a positive thing. And most people are going to respond positively if you approach it from a positive lens and you simply say, we're here, we're ready, and we're going to fight for our environment because this is not a political issue to us. And of course, there are different ways to solving these issues. Uh, but at the end of the day, we all share this planet and conservative or liberal, uh, we might have some different policy ideas, but we're going to come together and, and start solving some of these things. Yeah, I think that's great. I feel the same way. I've worked a lot. I'm in, a, I'm in certain programs and take certain classes where obviously I'm always surrounded by liberals and people who don't realize I'm a conservative and suddenly they do and they have no idea because i I just care about so many things and I have so many ideas and ways that I want to solve certain issues and they never would have guessed. And I think that's a really good point to make to say like you have to use your voice as a conservative to make it clear that like we do care about these issues. And, and I, and I have the same experience of having those positive responses. So I really appreciate that. Well, and people um, like people like you, Miranda are, are 
really helping spearhead the future of the conservative movement. And, you know, every, every political movement has its own differences than the movements prior. Our, our conservative movement that you're helping spearhead is focused on issues that older generations of conservatives haven't been as focused on. And leaning into environmental issues is a serious, serious, uh, of, of serious, serious importance. And yes, it might be surprising to some people that our generation wants to talk about racial issues or environmental issues or whatever, whatever kind of the taboo conservative issue is. But that's why we're fighting for a new conservative movement that is still based in conservative principles, but it has a little bit more holistic approach on what issues are we talking about. And again, it's going to surprise a lot of people, but it's so worthwhile and super appreciative of your voice in this effort. Thank you so much for that. That That's awesome to hear from you of all people, especially. Um, <laughs> do you have any final thoughts that you would want to end this interview on? No, I mean, look, if people are listening to this and they want to be involved, we'd love to have you as a member. Uh, it's free at acc.eco slash membership. Uh, but at the end of the day, what's really important is that there there need to be more Benji backers and Mirandas in the world. And uh you know, we there are there are plenty of us already, but we need more voices standing up and and fighting for our environment through conservative principles. Uh, because the the monopoly on this issue that the left has that they admit they have is not productive for anything, the environment or the economy or or the political landscape. And so, if we can continue making uh, change, and it's not just me, it's thousands of people uh, who have been doing this uh, on behalf of our generation we will build this new conservative movement that is, you know, sustainable for generations to come. Yeah, that's a great point to leave off on. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I, again, I really appreciate it. This has been a blast for me and, and, and a huge honor. So thank you. Well, keep in touch and let me know how else I can help. And, and thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. You can visit our website, theeaglefreepress.com, to find this episode posted with links to all of the sources I use, including the American Conservation Coalition website, where I got a lot of my information from. I want to give a huge thank you again to Benji Becker for taking the time to speak with me, and I hope you all enjoyed our conversation. We are in the business of starting real conversations, so contact us through our website by sending an email or commenting on our post with any questions or comments. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Google Podcasts, download it for later, and share it with others. Also, please subscribe to the Eagle Free Press and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to stay up to date with our latest content. Thanks for listening.